0: Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. Hi everyone, welcome back and thank you for the love shown to Sarah's story so far. If you haven't heard part 1 yet, head to episode 20 and give it a listen. For now, let's jump right into part two of Sarah's story from where we ended things last time.
1: I thought it would be much harder than it was, but it actually was easier than coming home from hospital with Tilly the first time. And I think a part of that was I no longer face the anxiety of worrying about whether or not I had a mental illness. I'd crossed that bridge. I had been to a mental hospital and survived it, and I had gotten better. I felt so much better than I had when I'd gone in that I knew I knew that it was okay to be mentally unwell and I knew that it was possible to to get help and to get better. And so we did quite well really, for several weeks there. We got back into a bit of a routine. I inquired about getting Tilly into daycare earlier than I'd thought, just to give me some free space and, you know, at least one day a week to look forward to. And so it felt like things were on the up and up. And as I say, you know, I'd broken down the wall of, you know, there's only healthy people and mentally unwell people and once you become mentally unwell, there's no going back. You know, I'd mm-hmm. been able to accommodate a change to my identity to say I have been mentally unwell. That is something I have experienced and I own that. You know, I was quite open with friends and felt able to disclose that to them. But it's funny, you know, I then felt like, wow, look at me, I'm so... I'm so refreshed and revitalized. I have this very like earthy, resilient understanding of myself as a person who has mental illness and is on that path to recovery. It turns out I still had a somewhat superficial view <laughs> of my own identity and of how mental illness worked because I had fallen into that trap of thinking, I was sick, now I'm getting better, and that's it. Every day from here on in will be better and better. I'm all sorted. Uh, It turned out that wasn't the case. (laughs) Um, Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. (laughs) It does seem like a cartoon where, you know, I'm walking towards the rake and I'm about to step on it and have it come up and hit me in the face and the audience knows that it's coming but I'm entirely unaware. So it is, you know, it is funny in a kind of slapstick way if it weren't so, uh, you know, dark. Um, So it's funny that each time I've struggled with mental illness over the past couple of years, it's often been triggered by a physical difficulty. So we had the misfortune, I guess, that after a month or so of being home from the MBU, Tilly had a seizure and Mm. we're incredibly lucky that nothing came of it. It seems like it was just one of those things. We went to hospital and she didn't obviously have an infection you know they couldn't find that there was something wrong which they were testing for because febrile seizures are very common in babies you know they did all of those tests and those were normal but they said look it's probably just one of those strange things that happens to babies while they're still bringing all of their systems online you know there was some misfiring in her brain that caused a strange thing to happen they sent us home with you know advice on what to look out for for epilepsy and so on she continued to be robustly healthy otherwise and thankfully has never had another seizure. So I do think it was just one of those things. It was kind of very unfortunately timed for us happening only a month or so after my admission had ended because it really showed me just how fragile I still was. And I think that That shock of, you know, seeing her have the seizure, having to take her to hospital, the uncertainty of whether she was going to be okay, it did set me back and, you know, did lead to a lapse. I felt like I was sliding backwards. I couldn't listen to her cry without feeling incredibly triggered and anxious and depressed once again. Whereas the, so the first time I went to the MBU, it did feel like the anxiety and OCD were kind of paramount. This second time when I had a lapse, it felt like it was time for depression to take center stage, where rather than feeling like I couldn't sit still and I had to be constantly active and was always on the lookout for threats, this time around it was much more not having energy, not being able to get to sleep at night, but then not being able to rouse myself in the morning, being stuck in circles of negative, depressive thinking about my relationship with the baby, you know, back to those thoughts of I'm a terrible mother, I'm not doing the right thing by her, I'm failing her, she's so vulnerable and I'm not protecting her, as opposed to previously when that had been accompanied by what if, what if something happens to her. This was almost more fatalistic like, Bad things are happening to her and I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing enough. Therefore, I have already failed her. And so that that spiraled into a negative place relatively quickly, which kind of took me by surprise. It challenged that, that view that I'd had that, okay, I'm fixed now. I'm all good. I'm better. I definitely wasn't. Uh, and I think partly because it wasn't what I was expecting, I was probably a bit... Blase and not attentive enough to what I was feeling. On discharge from the MBU, I built a recovery plan, as we all do, of these are the symptoms I have to look out for. This is what I'm going to do in terms of self care and practicing therapy skills. This is who I'm going to ask for help, or all of those good things that you should be doing. Instead, I kind of let things slide. You know, I could tell I'm having some negative thoughts. This isn't great. But I just let myself keep going with daily routines without really changing things up and devoting more time to dealing with those thoughts, processing them, applying skills to work that through and acknowledging that they were harmful thoughts or to doing anything to look after myself on the positive side, like crafting time for exercise or for things like art that I really enjoy that would have created more positivity in my day. And then I slid a bit further and I thought, oh, this is really serious. I should do something about it now. But I kind of only realised that once things had slid too far and found myself in quite a deep pit of depression to the extent that I no longer felt able to do anything about it. Certainly not anything, you know, I kind of skipped the first couple of steps on the safety plan that were minor actions like take yourself for a walk or call the GP and instead ended up in a situation where I became suicidal and was having thoughts of self-harm. I went through feelings of worthlessness, so I'm a terrible mother, Feelings of hopelessness. I'm a terrible mother, and I can't do anything about it. And then that led to unsafe thoughts of, "I'm a terrible mother. I can't do anything about it. And therefore, the only way out of this situation is um, to end things." Uh, and that was that felt like a new, <laughs> a new, uh, a new low in how much I could frighten myself. Um, I was a long way from taking antidepressant being the most scary thing that had happened to me. This was, you know, a whole new frontier of being afraid. And that definitely felt like, you know, at this point I'd already been to a mental hospital, I'd already had to have all of this therapy, but I still felt like suicidality was something that only happened to people who were very sick, possibly irredeemably so. And so I did make use of resources like the mental health line in New South Wales and some of those more crisis services uh, and ended up reporting to the ED to say that I didn't feel safe, that I was worried for myself and for the baby, Um, which, you know, it's strange looking back on it felt like I was so depressed I didn't feel like I could get out of the house to go for a walk but it felt relatively not easy but relatively straightforward to take that step of going to hospital and I'm forever grateful that as one of the doctors put it I am help seeking because I think it was literally a lifesaver for me that I was able to acknowledge this time around Wow, this is something I can't deal with on my own. This is a dangerous situation to be in. So I'm going to get the parachute active. And that was that was another another scary experience, but also another really supportive one. From the ED, I ended up being admitted to the Marie Bashir Centre at RPA, which is their mental health center, and ended up being there for I think maybe a little over a week after being assessed by the psychiatrist there, they agreed that it would make sense for me to go back to the MBU for another admission because in talking to the psychiatrists, the consistent themes were I feel like I need help but also I'm really missing my baby and it's not helping my mental health to be away from my baby. Uh, And mother-baby units, that's literally the reason that they exist. It was funny from... Where I was in the Marie Bashir Centre in my room, I could see the construction of the mother-baby unit at RPA underway, but it wasn't ready yet. So that wasn't a solution for us at that time. And I'm just so grateful that the MBU that we had both been to, it was available. As it happened, they didn't have a bed in the MBU right away. So that was why it ended up being about a week until I was able to make it to the MBU. So that was hard and it was definitely very, very revealing being on a general mental health ward in a public hospital, how different an experience that was to being in a mother-baby unit. There was much more variety in the experiences of the other patients on the ward you know, there were people who were a lot sicker than the people that I'd met on the MBU. But also I felt a lot sicker than I'd been on the MBU. So that was, that was a challenging time. And I was so grateful when a bed did open up, and I was able to go back to the MBU. It was funny, again, it was a dichotomy of, I'm scared to be back here and that my recovery has failed in inverted commas but also I'm grateful to be back here particularly compared to the unfamiliar territory of RPA I felt like when I walked into the MBU I knew the way it smelt I knew the way the rooms were set up I knew where to find the coffee and tea in the kitchen and most of all I was able to walk in there with Matilda And that was, that felt amazing. That in itself felt like a big step towards recovery to be back with her and to be able to continue to pursue health and skills development in her company. So to not be missing out on being around her.
0: And there's two things I want to ask here. Firstly, if we talk about Marie Bashir Centre at RPA, Mm. just to confirm for the listeners you couldn't see Tilly during that time and from memory your phone was kept away and yeah. you were still pumping but mm. you're not with your baby.
1: <laughs> and no your contact that's right. is really limited. Yes absolutely it was such a different experience and they just you know they aren't set up for perinatal mental illness. They Uh, They have so many great practitioners there who do wonderful work, but it's just they're designed for the majority of patients who are not not parents of a baby. They don't have a nine-month-old, 10-month-old baby at home. So yes, you're right. It was much more strict than the MBU in terms of what you were allowed to have with you. So they did take our phones away. There were only set times of day that you could use a phone or a laptop and you weren't allowed to have them overnight. But then they also were much more serious about things like ligature risks so you weren't allowed to charge your phone in the room because you weren't allowed to have a charger which was Mm. pretty terrifying and another challenge to my identity like I had reported I had gone to the hospital because I felt suicidal but then having a nurse say I'm taking this away from you because I don't want you to hurt yourself it felt like hang on no like I'm an educated middle class put together professional I'm not going to do anything like that. That's not, you know, that's not the person I am, which of course I'm saying that with a tone of self-mockery in my voice. But yeah, you know, it was a bit shocking. And you're right, I was still pumping. I've always done mixed feeding with Tilly. uh, And that is one area where the nurses in the centre went above and beyond. I had brought my own pump, but didn't have access to a way to sanitise the parts. And so they went and rustled up one of the hospital pumps from the maternity unit at RPA, which was like heaps better than mine and made sure that I had access to that, which was lovely and felt like, you know, that felt like a validation of part of my identity. The whole experience was like challenging to who I thought I was, but they were saying, yeah, of course you're a mum. Of course you can have access to this. Of course we acknowledge that despite the fact that you're so unwell. This is still part of who you are. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they supported that. It did feel weird that I wasn't able to keep the pump in my room because, of course, it had cords coming off it. So I had to keep wheeling it (laughs) back to the nurse's station. And with each shift change, it wasn't very common for a mother to be on that ward and pumping. And so each nurse would be like, hang on, what? What is this? (laughs) Are you sure you're in the right ward? Like, should I take you back to the maternity ward? Yeah, so there was officially no visiting because it was during COVID. They made a, a kind of compassionate exception for Tilly because they could see that it was like very traumatic for me to be apart from her and was kind of contributing to the like web of guilt and depression I was in to feel like, well, I'm away from my baby because I sought help for myself, you know, which uh, wasn't helping my mindset. So I was able to see her for half an hour or an hour a day most days so it ended up being not every day and it had to be supervised as well so there had to be a nurse or a doctor in the room with us while she was there so I'm very grateful that they made that accommodation and I think they kind of had to you know, cut some red tape to make that happen because they could see that it was important to me. But it was, again, just such a stark difference from the MBU where, of course, you're with your baby, you know, this is a big part of what you're experiencing and why you're experiencing it. And being with baby is best for mum and baby. It was such a stark difference and made me so, so grateful that I had access to an MBU. And really kind of brought home just how critical that is as a service. Because if the Marie Bashir Centre had been my only option, I'm sure they would have saved my life. They were wonderful and they do amazing work. But it would have been so sour and so difficult to go through that process of recovery without having Tilly with me.
0: And this is just me being curious, with the Marie Bashir Centre, was it similar to the MBU in the sense that you had group therapies, you had psychotherapists, you had psychiatrists to talk to and whatnot?
1: No, it was much more limited in that regard. And it wasn't entirely clear to me whether that was because of COVID. And I know that they were struggling with staff. It was kind of the height of the... Nursing staff shortages. So I got the impression that normally there would have been more in the way of therapy programs, but it ended up being quite, quite boring and quite lonely. That I think I met with the psychiatrists once a day or every second day. And for the rest of the time, it was just wandering around watching tv or doing puzzle books a lovely friend of mine brought in some coloring books and you know different activities like that so hanging out of my room doing those kind of activities but it really just heightened the difference between being Mm. there and being at home that looking after a nine-month-old kept me incredibly busy and suddenly here I was like getting sick of the sight of Sudokus because I had done nothing else (laughs) for the past several hours and kind of hanging out for mealtime because it would be something to do. I ended up with this process of really taking my time to eat not out of any mindfulness practice, but just because it was something to do. You know, I would make myself a cup of tea and then sit down and have the bread roll. And then I would get up and get a glass of water and eat the main course very slowly just to like try and fill in time until it was time to go to bed. I was also, you know, I was in this, liminal space of not knowing when a bed would free up on the MBU. So I just looked forward to bed every night because maybe the next morning we would get a call from the MBU and I would know when things were going to change. And I'd gone from the start of my experience was being terrified about being disturbed in the night and having to attend to Tilly. And instead, after they took our phones, the nights just stretched out as this long period of nothing to do and no one to interact with because everyone was just in their rooms trying to sleep. Yeah, it was such a strange and difficult period. And I just I think in many ways, you know, fussing about the baby and about the things to do to look after the baby can become over the top if you're struggling mm. with anxiety. But it can also be a positive adaptation. You know, it can it's productivity and it's making you feel useful And I remember I was having a conversation with Andrew about whether I should continue pumping and he mentioned that it was one thing that was able to connect me to Tilly still even though we were apart and something that I was doing for her and kind of reminded me of my role as a mother whereas the rest of that experience was not tied to that Mm -hmm. and had kind of taken me away from not just my family but my community, friends and so on. Uh, Yeah, and again, such a stark difference to the MBU where you're still very much encouraged to be the one calling the shots about your baby and being in control of your baby's care, which is an important part of recovery.
0: Definitely. The second question I had, you mentioned you had the relapse prevention plan. In that month that you were home, were there any supports in place that I guess were helpful or in hindsight would have been helpful to potentially prevent this lapse?
1: Uh, so yes, I got set up with this wonderful psychologist who I still see and has been the source of the, the most productive and encouraging therapeutic relationship I've had. So that was a, a real positive of that time. I was also as part of discharge hooked up with different support. So we started having call once a week with someone from Anglicare to go over some of the circle of security content with us, with my husband and I doing it together. And then I was hooked up as well with, I forget quite what it's called, but like a parenting support worker from the infant's home who was calling, you know, to try and provide some of that parent craft support around sleep and settling and so on. So those supports were there. I think One thing I've always struggled with is when I'm backsliding, I tend to try to protect myself by cutting down on commitments and trying to reduce how much quote-unquote work I have to do. And I still see those kind of supports as work, even though they're supposed to be things that take a load off, I think due to the social anxiety component of it all. So my memory of it is I did... Access those services. Say in the first fortnight I was home, and then in the second fortnight I started cancelling appointments, or not taking calls, or coming up with excuses, which I've subsequently identified as like something I really need to stay on top of because it's yeah. it's uh, ultimately uh, like. A negative behavior in the sense that it makes things worse for me and it's also a pretty good warning sign that things are going wrong when I start to do that to myself so I was hooked up with good supports but started removing myself from them and I think as well that was made harder by COVID that many of those interactions were telehealth and I think maybe I might have stuck with them better if it was actually like a physical appointment that I had to attend you know so it was another element of it was just hard because of the the time and place that it happened to you know I happened to be going through this
0: yeah and I think We have to also acknowledge that what you went through with Tilly and her seizure, understandably, you know, we do want to cut back. Yes, I'm in hospital with my daughter. My psychologist appointment can wait. You know, the behaviour isn't necessarily bad. It's good that we want to lessen our mental load, but you're right. (laughs) There was obviously that point where it became a barrier that you were putting up when it's enabling us to not get our help or not wanting to acknowledge what we're going through yeah
1: exactly and my anxious brain is very good at living in those gray areas of like i am able to justify these behaviors to mm-hmm. myself yes. up to we're and very beyond good at the that. point <laughs> yes absolutely i'm much better at coming up with reasons that i shouldn't stick with my commitments than reasons i should yes so
0: in terms of your second mbu admission do you want
1: to talk us through a little bit of that? Yeah, so it was a real blend of emotions and experiences. I think in terms of the actual living it out and going through the program again, that felt good I think because it was familiar so I knew what to expect I kind of knew some of the ropes I had lost some of the anxiety around what's it going to be like when I turn up to therapy am I going to be put on the spot am I going to be able to do these activities what's it going to be like being around other mothers and instead it felt like I was able to put that aside and just benefit from okay, I'm going to turn up to this session and do some useful psychoeducation. I know on Tuesday afternoons, I have art therapy to look forward to. And I know how good that is going to make me feel. I know that we can go and get coffee every morning and go for a walk with the baby. Whereas the first time I was in the MBU, I was anxious about what if the baby doesn't fall asleep in time? And what if she cries? And what if I can't actually go for the coffee walk? This time, you know, I felt like Going back to Hogwarts for the second year, and Harry knows his way (laughs) around the grounds and knows which teachers he can push the boundaries with and not. I felt like, okay, it's all right. It also felt positive and safe in that I knew this was a place where I could come back from feeling really unwell and I could experience recovery. So it felt hopeful to be there and particularly to be reunited with Tilly. And a little like on the first admission, After one good night's sleep, I thought, oh, wow, maybe I'm not unwell. Maybe I just (laughs) needed a good night's sleep. It was so positive being back with Tilly that... I had a real spring in my step then, you know, I felt so good being back with her and being able to get back into our routine and being able to do fun things with her that even like in one of my first discussions with the registrar, she was saying, you know, you seem quite happy and quite well. (laughs) And I was trying to explain, I actually feel really unwell, but just relative to how lonely I was feeling a few days ago, this feels really good. So it's just, you know, it's deceptive. So it felt so so familiar and so encouraging and so supportive to have Tilly around me all the time, to have access to Andrew who was able to come and stay at night and to be back around other mothers and nurses and staff. I knew it was just this like it made me feel more like myself again. On the flip side of that, it also felt scary in some ways that the recovery I had previously experienced there had not been perfect I guess you know hadn't fixed me all the way and hadn't been able to withstand all future experiences that I wasn't cured once and for all so there was an element of am I going to get better at all this time or is this new level of illness have I now Reach the level of mental illness where other people can't help me and I won't experience recovery or will I feel better again but it's actually a mirage and it won't last I'll go home feeling better but it's just another pick me up and I'll be back in another month and then I think there was a new element of shame that I had ended up feeling kind of proud of proud of the fact that I had been able to seek help to go through treatment and to come out the other side feeling better. So it almost became a bit of a badge of honour of I am open and vulnerable and I'm a person who has experienced perinatal mental illness and recovered and I am able to talk to people about my experience. But there was a new level of shame of, oh, no, I'm back here again and it felt okay to do this once but now I feel like I'm kind of malingering or like it's embarrassing to tell people I'm back here for a second time because like it's old news and they've already used up all of their care and support for me and now it just seems like scary and unfamiliar and maybe chronic as well you know so that was another little breaking down of identity of I'm not able to say I was one and done when it came to uh, lapses in mental health. You know, I'm back here for a second time. And what does that mean? What does that mean for the sort of person I am? Does that mean I will just constantly be in and out of the hospital for the rest of my life? How do I present myself to people? How do I describe this to other people without feeling ashamed for having to seek help again having to do this again
0: do you think you reconciled those thoughts or that feeling of shame through this mm. second admission
1: um i did somewhat get through that it was a learning experience and it was useful to to have to go through that it feels like each time i had a bit of a lapse with mental illness I also gained access to new knowledge and insight about myself that has been helpful in all of the therapy I've done since. You know, it revealed new things to me about myself. It helped me to challenge what I understood to be true and what I valued about myself and uncovered different positive and negative self-beliefs that I held. And so that process definitely began on that second admission. I do think I kind of do still struggle with the shame and anxiety of being a a recurrent user of the MBU and a you know almost a, a frequent flyer yes. um, because it's like it's a salutary lesson in the uncertainty of life that just as with most things in life mental well-being kind of isn't assured and it isn't perfect and it isn't binary but you kind of have to live with that and make the best of that that you can As a a person with anxiety, my brain is always struggling to find the answer and to deal with uncertainty by coming up with a solution. And that second admission was a real testing ground for teaching myself, you're not going to be able to do that when it comes to understanding what your future mental health is going to look like. So I started the process towards accepting that then. But I do still, you know, there is still some element of difficulty and negativity in understanding that about myself you know it's still a bit of a work in progress to accept that about myself that I wasn't able to it almost feels like a teacher's pet thing that I had to go back and do a remedial course in (laughs) perinatal mental health that once wasn't enough and I had to resit the test which is kind of acknowledging my fallibility and vulnerability and I yeah I do think that's a bit of a work in progress.
0: Do you think the second admission was different from the first in terms of how it helped your recovery? What was it like when you were discharged? Did you feel more willing to ask for help? You know, what were the differences there?
1: Yeah, so I think for one thing, I didn't feel as well going home the second time as I did the first. I still felt depressed (laughs) and was a bit frustrated to not go home with more energy, whereas it felt like I'd been able to get quite a good hold on my anxiety in the first admission. Then in the second admission, I had got back to a more stable place, definitely, and a place where I could see that recovery was possible and I had more hope. I didn't feel as depressed. I no longer felt unsafe, but I still felt like low in energy and still plagued by Negative self talk and fatalistic thinking and low appetite. And that I almost felt a bit shortchanged like, no, I did my time. I was here for three weeks. (laughs) I'm supposed to be back to normal now. What's happening? So that was challenging. I do think it was helpful for my recovery because it was yet another push towards a more resilient view of myself and my well being as something that is always changing, which means it can change for the worse, but it means I have more autonomy over being able to change it for the better. And it was yet another fear that I had to address of I could be a person who was depressed just out in the world, not in hospital, having to shop for groceries and go to the dentist and so on. And it was possible to have those experiences at the same time. It was possible to be depressed and to live a normal, happy life. I was particularly impressed that I was able to still feel joy and silliness and playfulness and enjoy going for coffee with friends despite feeling quite depressed. So I think grateful that I was able to have those moments because, uh, you know, those little things always gave me hope and very, very relieved that both things could be true. So I guess kind of confused and grateful at the same time.
0: I think that's such a big lesson a lot of us learn on this journey is that it's not black and white. It's not mentally well or mentally unwell. Most of the time, and this is life in general, things coexist we can be right. extremely anxious, we can be mildly, moderately, severely depressed, and we can still find joy in things. There is still silliness in and amongst all the shit. <laughs>
1: Yes, that's right. And a really good counter to my proclivity to withdraw from the world when I don't feel well. You know, the fact that I can feel unwell and still engage in the world is like a good way to challenge that tendency to say, no, you are able to do both, even though it feels hard and it doesn't feel fair that you have to do this, which is then useful because it's better for me to keep up being a part of the world when I'm not feeling well.
0: Definitely. And in terms of relapse prevention this time,
1: was Hmm. there anything
0: different on that plan compared to the first time? Or was it pretty much the same, but it was more, Sarah, you need to actually use these things?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think there were many similarities. I think definitely the first line was, you need to take this seriously. This is for real. This is not just window dressing. This could happen again. You need to be on top of it. We gave more attention to ordinary small things that would make me feel good on days when I was struggling to feel good. So the first time, because my anxiety was predominant, there was a lot of stuff around. Remember these techniques that you find helpful to get on top of breathing and to get on top of sleep and to remember to wind down. Whereas the second time there was, I remember doctors saying, You need to treat going for walks in the sunshine with friends as seriously as taking your medication. Like that is part of our prescription to you. It's not just Mm -hmm. indulgent self-care when you find the time. This is actually something you need to do. To me, it's always seemed like treating my illness is a combination of reducing the negative effects that I feel while also fueling the positivity in my life and I came home that second time with a real determination to do good things that made me feel happy, not see them as indulgent, but to kind of see them as essential to health in the same way as taking medication would be.
0: And how was that second discharge
1: period? It was good, honestly. We were lucky that Tilly was healthy and remained healthy. I think I was discharged the second time in November, so not long after that we headed into her first Christmas, and that was just a really lovely time of being able to enjoy her and to bring pleasant experiences to her, like meeting Santa and unwrapping presents and getting to celebrate with family. And I know that can bring its own stresses for a lot of people. For us, that was a really pleasant relaxed happy time and we managed to get away we went to Viji for a week or so and that like it felt in general that time felt like I was building to a more sustainable model of parenting With a somewhat older child who was approaching her first birthday, so, you know, had better sleep, was able to eat solids, was able to crawl and eventually walk. And so was able to occupy herself for longer periods of time. So she objectively became easier to deal with. But also I felt like I was building my repertoire, my resilience, my skills, my routine to something that balanced the responsibility of taking care of her with time for myself Throughout this time, I was able to acknowledge that I did tend to have this strong view of there's happy emotions and positive emotions, and you want to try and achieve those most of the time. Sometimes you'll have negative emotions like sadness or anger or fear, and you have to be done with those as quickly as possible, do as much as you can to avoid them and try not to think about them. Over those first couple of admissions, I really started to unpick that and realize You know, as they tell you time and time again in that MBU and therapy, emotions are just telling us something, they're signals, they all have their purpose. So they're neither positive or negative, you know, they're all just part of our human experience. And so I was able to do a lot of work to reframe that, which I think is why I felt that I was in a more positive and resilient place, that I was less afraid of experiencing uncomfortable emotions like sadness or fear, but also just on balance, experienced more contentment and satisfaction. Around that time, I extended my maternity leave. I had originally taken a year and I took an extra year of unpaid leave because I felt like this is what I wanted from maternity leave. You know, it's not all easy. There's still times when the baby cries. There's still times when it I'm really frustrated that she did another poo after I just changed her nappy, (laughs) but it felt good. It felt like I knew what I was doing and I was enjoying her company and enjoying my own company and seeing friends and doing therapy. And I think the, the key word was sustainable. Probably for one of the first times, I felt like I can do this. You know, I can see a path through to when she starts school, you know, that used to always be in my mind right before my first admission. I was thinking she's only four months old. How am I going to cope until she's five and she goes to school and someone else looks after her five days a week? By the time she was almost a year old, I thought, no, I can do this. Sure, she'll go to daycare, but even if it was just us, I think I can make this happen. I feel more comfortable in my shoes.
0: As much as, you know, I wouldn't wish you to have gone through it and, you know, have something like this humble you, I'm glad that you actually got the maternity leave you deserved.
1: Yeah, it felt like I'd finally come through to what I imagined motherhood to be when I was pregnant. Yeah, and...
0: Spoiler alert, um, that <laughs> second admission wasn't your final admission to no. the MBU. Let's chat about this third experience.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I had managed to join the loyalty program at that <laughs> point. <and laughs> I get a special a special present every Christmas and birthday, <laughs> um, I wish. So, yes, I was able to benefit from that MBU for a third time. As with the previous lapses, I had another lapse in mid-late 2022 that was precipitated by physical illness in the Mm. family it took longer like a a more drawn out series of events that precipitated it which I think is a sign of the fact that I was building resilience that it took more to (laughs) unsettle me than it had previously but we had the good fortune to go and visit my brother and his family when they were living in the US. And that was a wonderful time. Uh, For a fair bit of that time, I was there with Tilly on my own, I flew overseas with her on my own. And again, felt like super mom, like, wow, look at me, I'm doing this. I'm in a foreign country with my baby, look at me go. Uh, I should probably be conscious in the future that every time I think I'm a super (laughs) mum, I'm about to experience something of a lapse, it's definitely pride comes before a fall. And I think partly because probably when I get to that mindset, I feel a bit cocky about self-care. You know, I stop doing some of the things I need to do to take care of myself because it feels like things are going so well. And the sting in the tail was when we came home from the US, we all got COVID. (laughs) Thankfully, Tilly, she was pretty sick, but then she got better quite quickly. She bounced back. Andrew and I were unwell. It wasn't pleasant. And but thankfully even for us it wasn't, you know, we didn't have ongoing complications. Other than I struggled a lot with fatigue and felt tired for a long time. And then life got back to normal relatively, except for my tiredness. Tilly went back to daycare. And then she Just started facing this like barrage of childcare illnesses that, you know, feels like one of the great injustices of having a toddler, (laughs) (laughs) a young child in daycare that they just get sick so often. Not only is the baby sick, but you're sick as well. So whatever other plans you had are screwed. And she just, it was just relentless. She got hand, foot, and mouth, and then she got a cold, and then she got impetigo and hand, foot, and mouth at the same time. (laughs) When she was a smaller baby, the trigger for me was her suffering and how I couldn't control that. This time around, I was a bit more resilient in that I was able to be more objective and balanced and think, yes, you know, I'm sad that she's suffering, but you know, it happens and I'm doing the best I can. But just the stress and exertion of having to keep looking after a baby who was so sick and who wasn't sleeping and who was crying all the time and and while you're sick as well (laughs) exactly that's right and she would shake when we were changing her nappy and wiping her bum because it was so sore and she would say mommy mommy which was just you know that was the part of the suffering that was difficult to rationalize and accept as normal that she was just so sad (laughs) that eventually wore me down and so it was you know rather than one seizure which is what it had taken the year before it was more like six or eight weeks of illness that caused me to backslide again it was kind of quite a similar experience of the lapse of withdrawing from the world cancelling appointments beginning to think more negative thoughts, getting stuck in these patterns of self-criticism, aided this time by the fact that because Tilly was home from daycare and because I was sick, it seemed more reasonable to pull out of coffee with people. You know, A lot of the people I was socializing with were mums and I didn't want to make their baby sick. I didn't want to give the psychologist hand, foot and mouth. (laughs) I didn't want to give her yet another daycare cold. And I was struggling with this fatigue as well so I felt it was easier and easier for my anxious brain to come up with reasons to withdraw so yet again I didn't notice the red flags I didn't act on those first one two three four steps of the recovery and relapse prevention plan and once again found myself back in a a pit of depression and starting to have unsafe thoughts again and thought ah right whoops (laughs) I did it again it was the same pattern and so that time I went back to RPA again and was assessed as not needing to be admitted to RPA which I think was good and bad good because it meant I wasn't apart from Tilly bad because I felt like I needed support and it was difficult having to go home on my own so almost exactly a year since my last MBU admission. And in some ways it was harder being at home with Tilly because she was at that point 18 months old. She could follow me around the house um, and say, mama, mama, and not not want to leave me alone. She had a strong preference for me, not necessarily over Andrew. She was happy for Andrew to do things for her, but she preferred that I be in the room at the same time. So he could feed her dinner, but I still needed to be there for her to talk to and to look at. When we took her to daycare, she began requiring all three of us to go in the car together. And so it was in some ways harder to get time for myself than the year before when she'd been only, you know, nine or 10 months old. And it was a bit easier to pull the wool over her eyes and she couldn't follow me to the bathroom when I went to have a shower. So that was like, that was an extra challenge of not having access to the RPA facilities at that point, that not only was I being sent home, but I wasn't able to take a break from parenting because Tilly is so clever and insistent <laughs> um, by this point, I'd changed GPs because my first GP had the temerity to move. Very rude of her. And, very rude. Um, it was difficult for us to get there. So we changed GPs and I happened to find another GP who is just so thoughtful and caring and wonderful and also has an interest in women's health and looking after parents. And so after I'd had this experience where I'd been to the ED and sent home, I went to the GP and said, look, I don't think I'm coping. I've contacted St. John of God and they've said it might be one to three weeks before I can get an admission there. RPA won't take me because I'm not unwell enough, but there has to be something in between. Like I kind of feel like I'm slipping between the two options here and I need more help. And she was wonderful. She had this really detailed conversation with me and said, how would you feel if I sent you to their MBU or if I sent you to St. John of God today? And I said, I would feel relieved, except that I would feel guilty for leaving Tilly and Andrew without me. And she said, Right, your health is important and you matter as a person. So I think what I should take away from that is that you'd feel relieved. And so it seems like that's the kind of support that you need. And she sent me back to the waiting room and called St. John of God, you know, worked her magic and managed to make it so that they said, We're trying to find you a place either today or tomorrow. And I'm eternally grateful for her because. I had felt like I don't know what I'm going to do for the next three weeks and suddenly it was down to I only have to manage for the next 24 hours. It was also a scary prospect because the MBU only takes kids up to the age of one. I was faced with going to the general wards of St John of God without Tilly. Tilly wasn't going to be able to stay with me. Andrew wasn't going to be able to come and stay and I was going to be in a different part of the hospital, which felt scary and it was yet another new new bridge to cross as well. But still, I knew St John of God and knew that it was a place where recovery could happen. So it was a bit of a a mixed bag of emotions. So were you put in the general acute ward until a bed Mm. became
0: available in MBU?
1: Yeah. So doctors agreed for me to be admitted under her, you know, with her as the treating psychiatrist because I had been her patient. Mm. And yes, so I think the MBU was full at that point. And so, yes, I just went to a bed on... I think it's the Mood Disorders Ward. So it was people experiencing depression and anxiety. And I was placed in group therapy. It was kind of a similar structure to the MBU, but with less parent craft of group therapy daily and access to different things like exercise and art therapy. And I was placed in one of those general group programs. The doctor and the registrar then worked to get me moved to a bed on the MBU, which happened after a couple of days, maybe a week at most, which was wonderful because it was familiar and because it's designed to have mothers and babies together it is more homely than the rest of the hospital so I felt more at home and the added benefit was that it's also more child-friendly so because it had that bigger play space it meant that Tilly could come and hang out there during visiting hours and so yeah it was a funny experience to be back there, you know, to be like this graduate of the MBU who was there still as a mother but without the baby (laughs) component of being on the MBU. But I was so grateful that they were able to exercise that flexibility. I kept going to the general therapy group partly because at that point it felt useful to have exposure to people who were experiencing anxiety and depression outside of the perinatal context Partly because as Tilly got older, you know, there's no clear boundary that makes mental illness perinatal or not perinatal. But my experience was becoming closer to that of someone in the general population as she became less dependent on me and less of a baby so it was good actually because I kind of had the best of both worlds I was able to take part in that general program but then still have the comforts of the MBU and the camaraderie of the other mothers as well. How
0: long did you stay in the MBU this third time?
1: Yeah so that time it ended up being three weeks and it did feel more I felt like I recovered faster. That time around, I did a medication change. So I had been on sertraline for about 18 months and I had gone up in dosage over time at various points and I had maxed out the dosage of sertraline. So as part of the admission, I moved on to vanlafaxine as just a different med to try and as an SNRI having a slightly different mechanism to an SSRI, doctors thought might be useful. And so I guess it was a different experience again from the previous two because I was going through the effects of withdrawing from the sertraline and then coming onto the venlafaxine, which was like really intense in its own way. Coming off the sertraline, I was so intensely moody and sensitive. It was like being a parody of a teenage girl. Like (laughs) I would cry at the drop of the hat. And then the next moment I would feel over the moon, like just passionately in love with Tilly and with my husband and with my friends. And then the next moment, you know, distraught about the nature of the world and the fact that it was raining and I couldn't go for a run. And I remember saying to the registrar, like, is this just the side effects of the medication? Or is this what I'd be like if I wasn't on an antidepressant? Because this is wild. And she assured me it was just my body adjusting to the sudden change in serotonin that it was receiving which was good to hear so even though I was in there for a third time and I'd been having these unsafe thoughts and feeling depressed it still felt like a shock how emotionally unsteady I was coming off the sertraline because like I felt like I'd done better than that in my recovery. I was like, are you kidding me? I thought it was therapy all the time. I thought I'd done all of this great work in talk therapy and building my toolkit. And was it really just the sertraline this whole time? Am I this much of a mess? And I'm assuming you had to come off it very quickly. Yeah, that's right. They tried to do it as quickly as I could tolerate so that I would be able to start up on the new med and start feeling the impacts of that. So it was quite rapid. I think I went from the full dose of sertraline, 200 milligrams a day, down to zero over the course of slightly less than a week. So it was like quite significant when it had taken me 18 months to get up to. (laughs) 200 milligrams so I guess it's just in the same way that your hormones and emotions are out of whack after birth it was kind of a similar like very sudden change that my brain was like what is happening what is going on here and so then starting on the venlafaxine was also a big jump because that had its own side effects. You know, it took longer to build up in my body. So I don't feel like I so much felt the psychological impacts quickly. You know, it was maybe four to six weeks before I started feeling that. But I did start feeling the physical impacts quite quickly around dizziness like in particular if I was standing up and I turned my body I would feel so dizzy that I'd have to sit down so I told myself I was like Zoolander right like I couldn't turn (laughs) which which way can't he turn he can't turn to the left or the right so it didn't matter to me because I couldn't turn either way so I just repeated that to myself over and over again don't turn just keep going straight or just sit down or be very (laughs) slow and so that was quite a wild experience And it was actually one of the reasons it was useful being in the general mood disorders group that a bunch of people were in there, happened to be in there for medication changes. So we were kind of going through that together. And so it's funny, like I left the hospital without an antidepressant working for me, which was different to the first two discharges because the venlafaxine hadn't yet built up to a therapeutic dose. And that was hard that I didn't have that like stabilizing my baseline. In some ways, though, it meant that it was a real taste of like what my non-medicinal toolkit involved, that Mm. any benefits I was experiencing were just based on what I was able to do through therapy and different skills to reduce the negative symptoms and boost positivity. So I actually found it very hard coming home that time. I think partly because I had been only seeing Tilly during visiting hours, I hadn't had her with me on the MBU and, you know, hadn't been mothering that whole time it was much more of a like dramatic shift back into going home and having to look after her the whole time. So I had a couple of trial visits going home, which was something I hadn't been able to do the previous year because of COVID. And it actually felt really unpleasant. Like I'd spend a couple of hours at home and then think, I want to go back to the hospital. I don't want to be here. This is hard. I want to just have time to myself to do my own thing. So that was quite scary where I thought that maybe, you know, after this third time I'm not going to be able to adapt back to the normal world. So it was something that I had to manage quite carefully with doctors and then with my outpatient psychologist to reset my expectations, to be gentle with myself, to set, like, positive associations with home, to bake bread and play nice music and change the sheets frequently. So you got that little boost to try and make it feel easier to adapt to being home again. But I think in retrospect, while that was a really challenging period, it did kind of prove to me that it wasn't just the meds, right, that I was able to do stuff on
0: my own. My last question Maybe. What advice would you give to someone who might be experiencing some of the symptoms, but who doesn't know if they should
1: reach out? Yeah. In line with that, what would you change? That's such a good question. I think my number one piece of advice, even when you feel scared of the smallest thing, even when it feels like everything in your life is so hard, the only step you need to be able to take is to ask for help. You can be in a place where it feels like even beginning to address and unpick and deal with the symptoms you're experiencing just feels like a whole other load that you can't possibly take on. In fact, you really only need to take that first step of disclosing that you're struggling because there is such a wealth of support out there for you. And if you're, in inverted commas, wrong, you know, we've both spoken about or we were so concerned that we weren't actually sick enough to seek help and we were. It was our brains tricking us. But, you know, if we had been wrong and we had gone to a GP or a psychologist or a psychiatrist and said we're really struggling, there is really no worst case scenario, right? Like the worst outcome is for them to say, hey, parenting is really tough. It seems like you're having a really hard time right now. I'm not sure that, you know, insert service here. I'm not sure that psychiatric hospital or medication or XYZ is quite what you need, but here's all of the other services that you can access. And, you know, I really doubt that any parent would be turned away from at least doing talk therapy. Anyone can benefit from that, let alone people who have gone through the incredibly life-changingly complex emotional event that is becoming a parent. The hardest part of it is just finding a person to ask for help and asking for help. And it's kind of a no-lose situation. You can only benefit from doing that. Uh, And I think... You know, this is, I said, I have one piece of advice. It's a very long piece of advice, but the undercurrent of that is that there's hope, that it is worth taking that brave step of exposing yourself and asking for help because, though that seems difficult, recovery is possible. And so it is like so valuable to you and your family and your baby for you to seek help and to get better so you can get back to loving and enjoying and struggling with and being overwhelmed by but coping with parenthood as the wonderful awful experience it can be Uh, and then the second part of your question about what I would change I think the challenge in what I've said is my piece of advice is Asking for help is the only step you need to take, but despite the massive array of services we have available, it can be difficult to know who to ask for help and to make sure that you're connected to the right services in a timely way. So I was very lucky with the GPs I had that they were very switched on to women's health and mental health. Not all GPs might be like that. And that's where awareness of other services like Gidget and Panda and all of those helplines comes in really handy that you shouldn't just take one no for an answer. You know, if you feel concerned, you should keep asking, but As I touched on, it's really tough when the effort of finding the right help is put on the individual who needs help and who isn't coping with washing the four bottles once a day. So what I'd really love to see change is for there to be more general psychoeducation and awareness of the array of supports available in the community and also a much greater supply of those services. It's ridiculous that there's so as few MBUs as there are given how prevalent perinatal mental illness is The two things are true at once, that we have a wonderful health system in Australia that I'm very grateful for, and it's better than in many parts of the world, but also we still need more. Mm. And so I think the struggle with MBU capacity, it's symptomatic of the stresses that the health system was under, particularly during COVID, the lack of capacity for psychiatric care in general, and then MBUs are such a specialised service where it's psychiatry and staff who are able to cope with babies Mm. and you know rooms that are set up to have babies at the same time but there's yeah there's so much more to be done that shows just how many layers you need to get right like you know so Mm -hmm. many things need to come together to provide effective support and what's more we're talking about this as residents of sydney Mm. you know whereas it always sticks in my mind of tegan living on the central coast and like she's not that far from sydney right but Mm -hmm. (sighs) even then you know there wasn't an mbu near her and even the hospitals that she had access to seemed less well equipped to cope with a perinatal experience than um, the ones we had access to so I mean there's so much to be done there and it's I feel like you kind of need to be a part of it before you realize just how much of an issue it is and how important it is on my part it's actually led to what I hope is going to be a really positive change where I now feel really moved to try to contribute to that so I have actually applied to medical school and I'm looking at becoming a doctor myself and my passion there is to get involved in the perinatal space. I'm thinking psychiatry at the moment. I could also see myself going into peds or maybe as a general practitioner. But my ultimate dream would be to start a hospital of my own that is basically just a giant MBU and to bring yourself and Tegan and all of our (laughs) other MBU friends on board to, you know, fund lots of spots for new nurses through charitable donations and to provide more beds and to build on our experiences to provide peer support and to guide the way that the services are delivered, yeah, to to help fill that great need that's there. One of the things I'd love to do is to help provide a clearinghouse service for mums and parents who are struggling to try and take some of that work away from them to say, you know, here we are as this hospital, but also we have GPs on staff who, you you know, will guarantee that you can talk to same day, even if it's for five minutes, and they will set you up even if you can't come to the hospital yet, you know. You can join a telehealth group therapy starting this week. That's led by a peer worker, so at least you have some connection. At least you're starting to get some benefit. Plus, we'll help you find a psychologist, and you know you won't have to do all of the work yourself. There's so many parts to that, and you know I don't even know if that's possible, but I would just love to, love to see a way forward to building from my experience to trying to contribute to that situation in some way.
0: And I think I've gone this whole session without crying and when you said that is when I got tears in my eyes because I think having gone through what we went through, we know how much it means to have a support like that and every single mother deserves that kind of
1: support. Absolutely. And I'm so proud of you with this project because I think it is one huge piece of what needs to happen to make the system better is to have people share their stories, to break down the stigma, to let people know that they're not alone. And so you're a real role model to me, honestly, back to how you have grown from being in such a a difficult place when Levi was so small to grow from that into becoming not only a wonderful mum but also like going above and beyond into this role that you're playing i'm so proud of you and i'd love to i want to try and copy you and find my own way of doing the same thing and
0: i think you will (laughs) i don't Mm. doubt you for one second thank you and thank you as well for always supporting me on this endeavor when it was still a little idea in my head you know you tegan everyone else didn't doubt me at all yeah. um you and tegan were the first ones to check out my website follow me on facebook instagram <laughs> and submit your stories yes so, <laughs> thank you for always supporting me because yeah. as with mental health as with mothering as with life in general it's not something we can do alone It's something that we do with the support and the love and the nurturing of those around us. So thank you.
1: And what a silver lining it is that out of that really difficult experience, we get the benefit of these friendships, you know, that we're cast in such a time of adversity but thank you for all that you do and your friendship as well
0: and that just reminded me of what you wrote at the end of your submission which I think is a nice way to end today and I mean I'm sure you don't even remember it because you submitted this back in March last year (laughs) Um, and I'm just reading it through now and it says still healing still suffering still trying to take each day as it comes but more and more grateful for the amazing friends I've made along the way yeah that's still true it's
1: still true thank you i
0: know it's a big story and i know it takes a lot to be vulnerable
1: and to share yeah i think it's such an act of healing you know it feels it feels brave to do it feels good to do outing myself but also if it can help even just one person feel slightly less alone it's so worth it
0: thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story if you like this episode please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website perinatalstoriesaustralia.com if these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now then come back another time protecting your mental health is the number one priority as always this podcast and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.